welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello, everyone. Today we conclude our walkthrough of this remarkable little book, the Book of Jacob. In our last episode, I spoke about Jacob's concluding words in Jacob 6. It really feels like Jacob intended those words to be his last. So it should catch our attention that he adds Jacob 7. Compared to the rest of the book, Jacob 7 has some unique qualities. If we look at the rest of the book of Jacob, trying to identify the different genres in that book, we see that he begins by explaining the charge that Nephi gave when he left the plates to Jacob. He includes some orienting remarks about Nephite society, including the struggles that prompt a sermon that he's about to recount. He next gives a sermon, followed by some theological and prophetic remarks, followed by an extended allegory, and then he gives more theological remarks where he interprets that allegory. And all of this, he never used narrative storytelling. But in Jacob 7, he will. Apparently, there's something about this story that Jacob found uniquely significant. No doubt, there were other really important events that he could have told us about. But this is the one he chose. We're going to try to figure out what it is about this story that Jacob found so important so as to add it to the end of his book. We'll start with verses 1 through 23, and right away we get introduced to this character, Sherem. It says, After some years had passed away, there came a man among the people of Nephi whose name was Sherem. Is Sherem not a Nephite? That's what it sounds like. Maybe Sherem's a Lamanite. He's going to mirror some of the objections that Laman and Lemuel used to raise. Maybe Sherem is part of another people who also lived in the land of promise. Maybe he's a Jaredite. The reality is that we don't know. Whoever he was, he was exceptional. He had mastered the language. He knew how to help the people to feel chosen without feeling the need to change, what Jacob calls flattery. Apparently, he's also read the scriptures. He knows the law of Moses, and this is central to his campaign. Almost like a scene from a movie, the two prophets, Jacob the prophet of Christ and Sherem the prophet of flattery, come head to head. If we take Sherem at his words, this encounter has been a long time coming, and people are choosing sides. We see similar scenes later on in the Book of Mormon. We see Abinadi preaching the doctrine of Christ and Noah and his priests defending the law of Moses. We see Nehor saying that there will be no Christ, Alma and the sons of Mosiah using flattery to lead the people away, and Zeezrom trying to convince Alma and Amulek to deny Christ. One way to understand this story is that this is the first example of a story that will play out again and again. But this question about the law versus Christ really is primary to the Book of Mormon. In 1 Nephi chapter 1, the very first chapter we read, this conflict is introduced when Lehi calls the people of Jerusalem to repent and to believe in the Messiah, and the response from the people is at best mockery and at worst attempted murder. Laman and Lemuel later argued for the righteousness of the people in Jerusalem who kept the law of Moses, they said, versus the delusions of their visionary father. We might not realize it, but this question is still primary in our lives. So there's a good chance that this story will be of use to us. 
Sherem levels a serious accusation against Jacob. I have heard and also know that thou goest about much preaching that which ye call the gospel or doctrine of Christ, and ye have led away much of this people that they pervert the right way of God, and keep not the law of Moses which is the right way, and convert the law of Moses into the worship of a being which ye say shall come many hundreds of years hence. But now, behold, I, Sherem, declare unto you that this is blasphemy. For no man knoweth of such things, for he cannot tell of things to come. There's a lot there, but let's not get bogged down. We can simplify Sherem's accusation by saying that he believes the law of Moses is the right way of God, and that turning that law into a method of worship of a future Christ is blasphemy. Apart from Sherem's value judgment of Jacob's beliefs, is he wrong? In other words, is he leveling false accusations against Jacob? I don't think he is. Nephi has said outright that they saw the law of Moses as dead. Jacob has said that they keep the law only because it points their souls to Christ. Adam Miller has an essay that looks at this interaction between Jacob and Sherem in his book Future Mormon. The way he frames this disagreement is, I think, helpful. As we've seen, to Jacob and Nephi, the law is dead and only becomes animated through Christ. To Sherem, the law has life in and of itself. Before we dive into that disagreement, let's take a second to consider the characteristics of the law of Moses. This law was a system of laws and performances that ordered relationships within the covenant community. It was incredibly detailed. Paul, who was an expert in the law, would later call the law a schoolmaster or taskmaster. So apparently, both Sherem and Jacob share the belief that keeping the law is important, even if it's arduous, but they disagree about what keeping the law actually accomplishes. We have limited information to work from here, but we've seen that Jacob isn't afraid to correct the people, while Sherem's preaching, on the other hand, has worked to flatter the people. Maybe we have an analogous example in someone like Abinadi and his confrontation with Noah and his priests. The priests of Noah tell Abinadi that they teach the law of Moses, and Abinadi responds that they may teach it, but they don't keep it. We don't know that that's the case with Sherem, but we have to ask the question, how does one use such a strict law to flatter people? As Adam Miller puts it, this is what flattery amounts to, the power to position yourself as a willing mirror for whatever image others hope to see reflected back to them. And I'm sure that we can think of people in our society who gain power and position as willing mirrors for whatever image others hope to receive reflected back to them. For both Sherem and Jacob, the law is indexical. That is, like an index finger, it points to something. Sherem uses the law to point to the image that the people have of themselves as righteous, favored, chosen, elect. We've seen that Nephites struggle with their image, even when they aren't living up to these titles. Jacob teaches that the law points to Christ, and this is filling in the gaps here, but his greatness and mercy and our weakness and desperate need. It points to a covenant that's supposed to bring about a new humanity, a new human family, a new way of being together. It may seem like none of this applies to us. We believe in Christ. We don't live the law of Moses. But is there a way to treat the structure, teachings, and standards of the church with the same self-justifying attitude that we're getting from the Nephites? Put in a different way, can we make the mistake of making the church about us and not about Christ? 
What about life in general? What about our talents? What about our prosperity? What about our opportunities and our scriptures or our energy or our vocations? Can every little detail point us either back to ourselves or to Christ? What does that look like? How does our worship change when we recognize our weakness and Christ's greatness and mercy? How do we treat others differently? I have this confusing but catchy little phrase that I use with my students. It's not about the thing. It's about the thing the thing points to. That's what we have to decide, and we have to decide it over and over and over again. What is all of this pointing us to? Getting back to the text, Jacob asks Sherem if he denies Christ. Sherem, appearing to operate in good faith, responds that if there were a Christ, he wouldn't deny him, but that there's not, and there won't ever be a Christ. That's quite a claim. Jacob has faith in Christ, but Sherem has faith in no Christ. He doesn't know. Denial of a god is still a theological position. He's religiously denying. Jacob asks if Sherem believes the scriptures, perhaps to establish a baseline from which to build. Sherem says that he does. Then you do not understand them, is Jacob's response, for they truly testify of Christ. And then he makes the point that none of the prophets have written nor prophesied, save they have spoken concerning this Christ. Our modern experience with information should give us some empathy for these two men who are reading the same scriptures, but definitely not reading the same scriptures. We live in a society where we have information overload and where we can't seem to come to an agreement upon a baseline as to what qualifies as truth and what qualifies as falsehood. We are learning by experience that what people call truth seems to have as much to do with who they are as it does with any other consideration. It turns out that that has always been the case. Jacob continues, And this is not all. It has been made manifest unto me, for I have heard and seen. And it has also been made manifest unto me by the power of the Holy Ghost. Wherefore, I know if there should be no atonement made, all mankind must be lost. It matters who Jacob has chosen to be throughout his life. It matters that he has a relationship with the Spirit, that he's led the type of life that enables him to hear and see. And all that he's heard and seen, remember that Nephi says that Jacob has seen Christ, has led him to know that there has to be an atonement made. His words here feel like Moroni's to Joseph Smith, that if Elijah didn't come to plant the covenant in our hearts and turn our hearts toward each other, the whole earth would be wasted at the time of the coming of the Lord. He's referencing Malachi there. And the word in Malachi is actually the same word as repent. Covenant, atonement, repentance, sealing, doctrine of Christ, the fruit, the love of God, the kingdom of God, eternal life. We've seen that all of these concepts overlap. It's not unthinkable to imagine Jacob saying something like, Sherem, you and I can't even agree on what the law is for or what the scriptures say. You think that we can just obey and sacrifice our way to unity? We are weak and desperately in need of Christ's sacrifice, grace, love, spirit to change our hearts. Otherwise, all of us will be lost. Sharon wants a sign by the same power that Jacob knows, the Holy Ghost. He doesn't want to change, though. He's not asking to pray with Jacob, to repent, to study the scriptures with him, and to correct his understanding. He wants to see without opening his eyes. That's actually a good metaphor here. We all know what it is to be in the dark for a long period of time and then to have the lights suddenly turn on. It's painful. It makes you want to immediately close your eyes, even if we know that we see more clearly in the light. There's discomfort involved in getting used to it. 
Sherem might not be as ready for the lights to turn on as he thinks. Jacob, on the other hand, still knows himself to be weak. What am I that I should tempt God, he says. Sherem doesn't get it. Maybe he can be shown his weakness, though. Maybe that will work. So Jacob says, Nevertheless, not my will be done. But if God shall smite thee, let that be a sign unto thee that, one, he has power both in heaven and earth, and also that, two, Christ shall come, and thy will, O Lord, be done, not mine. There's so much here. I've always imagined these scriptural conflicts between prophets and deniers as these epic battles with a conquering hero. But that's not Jacob's feel here. He's humble. He's weak. God has power, not him. I also love this word smite. It means to strike a blow. Think of like a blacksmith hammering away. Smith, smite. You see the connection. It certainly can be a painful and even destructive experience. But in the hands of the master blacksmith, the result can be magnificent. What are the moments when you have felt the Lord smite you, so to speak? How have these moments shaped your life? The Lord does end up smiting Sherem. The lights go on, to continue our metaphor, and Sherem is overwhelmed, not just spiritually, but physically. The contrast between what his reality was and what it is is too much. I think of Javert from Les Mis, whose reality, which is built entirely on this concept of justice, can't process a world where there exists the type of mercy that he receives from Jean Valjean. Sherem knows he's dying. He wants to speak to the people. Jacob describes his new speech as plain versus the perfect knowledge of the language that he had previously used to flatter the people. He denies what he has taught and affirms what Jacob has taught, but he still doesn't have faith. He's afraid that he isn't redeemable, but he confesses nevertheless, and then he dies. I think Sherem could have lived. Alma lives. Paul, who is blinded by the light on the road to Damascus, sees again. Sherem confesses Christ, but he doesn't cry within his heart. O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness, and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death, like Alma. He doesn't stumble the rest of the way to Damascus and plead for healing and baptism like Paul. Knowledge is not faith. Knowledge doesn't bring hope and charity. Only faith does. In a world where we are consumed by our consumption of information, Perhaps we should spend more time not knowing, but trusting Christ. The issue today isn't the law of Moses. It isn't even which church is true, like it was in Joseph Smith's day. It's whether or not there's a God. It's whether or not Jesus resurrected. It's whether or not he can actually call prophets and send angels and bring forth new scripture. There are answers to these questions, but they aren't, as with the rest of our lives, available at the push of a button. Before we receive knowledge, we must clear out enough space in our minds and hearts so as to have room for that knowledge. Interestingly enough, this is exactly the language that Jacob uses earlier in the chapter when he's beginning to contend with Sherem. He says, The Lord God poured in his spirit into my soul. Jacob had cleared out enough space to receive gratefully what Sherem would only accept as a smiting blow. We have to become the type of people who can live in a world where there's a savior, where we're redeemable, where others are redeemable. And that takes faith. This encounter with Sherem seems to have had a clearing out effect on the people of Nephi, perhaps more than any other thing that Jacob has tried. In all of his preaching, we never get the story of this type of large group repentance. They were astonished, struck with fear and trembling. 
They, like Sherem, were overcome by the lights getting turned on, and they, like Sherem, fell to the earth. Unlike Sherem, however, we see the fruits of faith. Peace and the love of God are restored to the people. They searched the scriptures and hearkened no more to the words of this wicked man. Moving on to verses 24 and 25, the fruits of faith don't stop there. Like Lehi, partaking of the fruit of the tree of life, the Nephites want to reach out to the family. Remember, Sharon may have been a Lamanite, or at least not a Nephite. Maybe seeing that drama played out reminded the Nephites that they couldn't just hide behind their chosenness. So Jacob tells us that means were devised to reclaim and restore the Lamanites to the knowledge of the truth. But as is often the case, it was all in vain. The Lamanites are more committed to domination than restoration, and so the wars continue. Then we get another reference to Psalm 95, this time to verse 1. Remember that that's the psalm that Jacob began his book with and used in his first conclusion. Here he says, Despite the wars against the Lamanites, that the Nephites trusted in the God and rock of their salvation. There aren't a lot of rocks out there from which you can expect to receive living water while wandering through the desert. But like Moses and the Israelites, the Nephites have, at least for a time, come to realize what exactly is sustaining them. It isn't their wealth, it isn't their pride, or their sense of superiority. It's the Savior. Moving on to verses 26 and 27, here Jacob gives his final farewell. We started our look into the book of Jacob with these words, but they're so hauntingly beautiful that they deserve our attention again. The time passed away with us, and also our lives passed away, like as it were unto us a dream, we being a lonesome and solemn people, wanderers cast out from Jerusalem, born in tribulation in a wilderness, and hated of our brethren, which caused wars and contentions. Wherefore, we did mourn out our days. He then tells us who we can expect to hear from next, his son Enos, and closes with these words, And to the reader I bid farewell, hoping that many of my brethren may read my words. Brethren, adieu. Adieu is such a strange choice for translation. It's a French word that literally means to God. He's trusting our care, the care of his family, and the care of his words to God. He didn't have a lot of direct evidence in his life for hope. He was born a wanderer, and he died still a wanderer. But he believes that ultimately the gardener and his servant will bring forth the fruit of the covenant, a new humanity, a new human family, and that his words will be of use to them in that effort. That's the book of Jacob. I hope that you have felt the urgent relevancy of this book. May we cultivate lives of faith and gratitude in the greatness and mercy of the Lord. And may we, in weakness, turn our hearts towards each other and create a new way of being together. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.